Welcome to Love Bites. Love Bites. Love Bites. By Dr. Tara, your destination for sexual wellness and mindful relationship advice. Hope you're having an orgasmic day. Do you want to become sexually powerful? If the answer is yes, go to lovebites.co and check out 30 Days to My Best Sexy Self, a Sexual Mindfulness Journal. This ebook will change your life. In this sexual mindfulness journal, I offer the tried and true methods to become more sexually confident. It's for everyone who wants to have the best sex life possible. Can we really trust our doctors when it comes to our own sexual health? Why can't doctors speak openly to patients about sex and or why don't they? Did doctors really prescribe vibrators for their patients? Today, we're going to find out. Hello, my loves. It's Dr. Tara, your favorite sex and relationship expert here at Love Bites, the podcast for sexual wellness and exploration. Today, I have a special guest and her name is Rainy Horwitz. Hi, Rainy. Hello, Tara. So nice to meet you, Dr. Tara. Yes. So glad to have you here, Rainy. Can you tell my Love Bites fam a little bit about you? I know about you and I love your work and I love you. So please tell them about you. Sure, of course. Uh, My name is Rainy Horwitz. I'm a fourth-year medical student in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, I'm an aspiring urologist. Uh, I'm really interested in studying sexual medicine. Uh, I'm a creator of Sexplained Med, which is a kind of educational initiative on Instagram, uh, if you guys are interested. Uh, And before medical school, I worked a lot in the history and philosophy of science research area, kind of looking at how things like gender expectations and misconceptions about uh, women's bodies and moral traditions really shaped the medical care that women received in the U.S. So uh, now in medical school, I'm kind of applying to urology residencies in the fall, and my current research interests are really looking into if there are kind of roles for pelvic vibrators in medical treatment options, uh, and also looking into how the censorship of the word vagina or the intentional avoiding of that word might affect uh, progress in female pelvic medicine. Wow. I feel like that's a mouthful. Let's unpack. Shall we? <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. Okay. Sure. So, uh, Rainy is awesome. And you should totally check out Explained Med, in which I'm going to have a link in today's show notes. So you can totally go follow her and learn more. Um, this is your sexual health. You have to take control of it. Um, so let's start with, you know, this thing where like doctors are not speaking to their patients about sex. What's going on? So, you know, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that doctors aren't necessarily trained to ask all that much about sex in medical training. Um, I think very rarely do you see doctors, usually they're in the fields like OP gyne and urology, who might have gotten a little bit more sex education. But for the most part, in medical school, there are only five to eight hours of sex education uh, in curriculum on average. And really what we're taught about taking a sexual history is a minimal. Even that phrase is something I wasn't really taught that much in medical school. We're just kind of taught to talk about STIs or uh, sexually transmitted diseases and infections. A lot of the things that uh, we are, the scripts we're given in medical school kind of assume monogamy. Uh, we rarely or to ever, I don't think I've ever been taught formally to uh, ask about female pleasure. Um in uh, kind of medical training. And there's there's definitely some exceptions to that. There's some gynecologists that really valued that, but really uh, urologists tend to focus, focus on male erections and male orgasm. And there just really isn't 
the dialogue and the training in medical school for people to kind of figure that out. And, and, and the truth is a lot of doctors even get a lot of their sex education from porn. And yeah. so that's, that's a problem. That's a really big problem. So a big part of what I'm trying to do on Instagram is not only educate uh, patients, but people like people without a medical education, but also educate providers so that they feel more confident using language like vagina, like clitoris, like things that have been historically censored and avoided uh, in our literature and feel empowered to have those conversations with their patients and take that shame away. Okay, so that's really interesting. I think there is a myth that doctors don't have sex. Huh, what do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can't really, I can't speak to, to all doctors, but I will say that there's definitely, um, there is actually research on this. I should No way. There's research about... on whether or not doctors, <laughs> like, well, there's specifically frequency. research. Well, there's specifically research on sexual dysfunction among medical students that I oh, read a while wow. ago. And, and I think the point of the paper, if I remember recalling it correctly, I'll have to find it, was that there is kind of a problem of sexual dysfunction in medical school. Uh, I don't know if it's due to the stressful lifestyle or the just inherent kind of trauma that comes with going through medical school um, mm. or the fact that so many medical students take SSRIs. Mm. Uh, that could also be something that's definitely like a research opportunity for people to explore. Whoa, yeah. But I think that, uh, for a lot of people who pursue medical training, you, you give up a lot of things. You're used to sacrificing a lot of things, yeah. uh, including family weddings, including, uh, just big life, your own milestones in life. And so I think that, that can really, uh, get in the way of some people's ability to want to enjoy life, uh, and enjoy pleasure. And so even really knowing that they can have a conversation with patients about pleasure, I think might even open up kind of some doors for providers themselves, doctors, nurses, uh, not just doctors, but um, other, other providers to really think about their own uh, sexual health in that same way. Yeah. To boning more. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love yes. It's a stressful job. <laughs> it's a stressful job. Yes. To release stress. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, at the beginning you were saying a few things that I wanted to unpack. So, uh, when you were saying, you know, you weren't educated as doctors to like ask about or even to learn about female sexual pleasure. But like, is that necessary? Because I'm, I'm thinking right now as myself, as a woman, when I go see my gynecologist, uh, I don't necessarily expect him to ask me like, so like, what is your level of sexual satisfaction? Or like, are you happy with your partner? Um, so what, what, what was your thought behind that? I think that it definitely, it, it really depends on the provider, but I think that although, but whole, like, can I say first, although that would have been cool if he was like, <laughs> yes, what's your level of sexual satisfaction? I I, like, that's, a, that's a great question. The way you worded that, the question that I'm kind of trying to publicize and make and normalize among people in all professions, especially like primary care is has sex been a positive experience for you ooh, to kind yeah. of open up the, the positives and negatives, um, of something like that. But, but I think what it really comes down say to negative. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. I think the, what, to answer your question about, um, who should talk about female sexual dysfunction. It's very interesting because obstetrics and gynecology as a specialty is devoted to female reproductive health. So yeah. the goal is, is reproduction. That word, uh, I used to identify as a reproductive health educator until I learned and had the realization that reproductive health is different than sexual health. Mm -hmm. And in the world of urology, uh, that distinction is very much preserved. There are urologists who undergo a fellowship in andrology or fertility. And then there are separate urologists who go into things like men's health and erectile dysfunction 
and reconstructive type surgeries. So in the world of urology, they separate those things and take them both very, very seriously. If a man is having erectile dysfunction, there are many, many levels of treatment that can be addressed. First medical treatments like pills or injections and things, and then on to really invasive, life-changing permanent surgeries that are very technologically advanced. There is no specialty that is devoted to female sexual health. It is very, it is very slow. It is very slowly becoming more of a conversation, even in the urology world, uh, in the OB-GYN world, no one has really taken accountability for female sexual health. That's like, this is what's going to be our thing. But in OB-GYN, it's known to be women's health. So you would think that they would be the ones to cover it. However, they don't really receive a ton of training about it either. Wow. So what, so what do you think if you were to reconstruct the whole like med school situation, especially for gynecologists, because you're saying that urology is more about the penis, right? So like, what about gynecologists? What would you, if you were to redo a school, like if you were to open a school, like who would have this job and like, what would they study? I think that there's a, there's a specialty called urogynecology that you can either go into if you do an OB-GYN residency or a urology residency. And they really focus on kind of the interaction between like the trauma of childbirth and the pelvic floor and sexual function. But I think that it's so interesting that you have to either go from one of these two specialties that are very, very different to get to this place that is very specialized. It's considered like very, very niche. So what I think would be helpful is just at a bare minimum, having workshops for medical students to practice taking a sexual history with each other, kind of role-playing and get comfortable saying those words. So people of any specialty, regardless of if it's an internal medicine resident or an emergency room medicine resident are comfortable asking these questions because it's really just the lack of having the dialogue and the training in practice to do it because we're so uncomfortable with these words. But I really think that like if an emergency medicine, if an emergency medicine physician say they see a lot of patients who are come to the hospital for something called a rectal foreign body, which people, a lot of people have seen uh, x-rays of, of people like putting things up their butt basically for Wait, what? Yeah. There's all kinds <laughs> okay, of like, can crazy. We, I'm going to, I have to make that a small clip. So <laughs> should <laughs> sure. you re-say the term and what it means? Sure. Sure. So Something that is commonly seen on the internet and a a source of discussion is presentations to the emergency department for what's called a rectal foreign body. Uh, And it is when someone puts a foreign object, sometimes it's like a shampoo bottle, sometimes (laughs) it is a ketchup bottle, sometimes it's a child's toy, sometimes it is a lot of other things. It's kind of like an interesting internet discussion that people have around these things. But these are preventable, kind of expensive presentations in the hospital. And I think that if an emergency medicine resident or physician had the skills to, you know, tell a patient, Hey, I understand that you are using, like having some sort of anal sex, whether it be solo or partnered. If you, if that is something that is important to you, maybe consider finding something with a flared base so that you don't have to pay this expensive medical bill every time (laughs) that you want to explore that. And I don't think that's that, that hard of a conversation to have. Right. And I think with the with the right training, we could really prevent people from hurting themselves in not just urology and OB-GYN and like sexual ways and a lot of other different specialties that I really feel like under appreciate the importance of sexual medicine. I feel like you should be the person that creates this program. <laughs> I feel like you should get a huge grant to like do this program because it's well, so necessary. And the way you said it just now about like, oh, hey, you have a, a train like toy car up your butthole. Like next time, try this instead so you don't have to pay this bill. Like that was so easy for you to say. 
but I'm pretty I can't sure, take all the like, credit. I can't take all the credit. So very awkward. Well, they definitely are. I have to give a lot of uh, credit for kind of my role models at uh, the Sexual Medicine San Diego uh, Institute with Dr. Erwin Goldstein and Sue Goldstein. They are really uh, taking a lot of initiative and getting research in a lot of different areas of sexual medicine. Um, and the Journal of Sexual Medicine also is publishing a lot of things that are not just, there are, there's definitely a lot of urology and OB-GYN topics, but there is also spinal surgery topics and persistent genital arousal disorder. That's very much a, a neurological disease that is getting kind of more and more attention in the world of sexual medicine. But the problem is not a lot of people kind of recognize these things on a global scale. And they're definitely not things that are taught in medical schools. I'm really interested in what you just said. So I'm going to kind of sidetrack to that a little bit. Neurological issues uh, mm -hmm. that you were talking about. What are some of these things that you just read? So this is definitely not my area of expertise right. by any means, um, but I have seen a couple talks at conferences about things like uh, PGAD, persistent genital arousal disorder, um, and its PGAC. relationship. <laughs> yeah, PGAD. And it's basically a very debilitating um, condition where people have unwanted sexual arousal almost all the time. And it can be very painful. It can be very uncomfortable. And it's a very debilitating experience Whoa. that a lot of patients are very obviously embarrassed to talk to their provider about, but warrants a lot more research because there are kind of treatment studies being evaluated, um, like spinal surgeries for removing things called Tarlov cysts, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, I saw something about that recently, or uh, just various neuroimaging to kind of locate the lesion that's causing the pain in the brain and map it to the right point. So we have an explanation for what's going on and can better explain these medical entities that used, used to not have any, uh, any knowledge behind them. It was just like, that's really bizarre, uh, and, uh, -huh. uh difficult to study because of the sexual <laughs> nature of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. Like, Oh, here, like 50 men of hard dicks come over to my lab and, uh, let, exactly. let's, let's re let's reevaluate. What about, exactly. what about these like physical issues for, uh, women or for people with vaginas? Uh, what are some, what's like the like top three that people experience try to just kind of normalize it a little bit of like, here are some issues that a lot of people experience. Like in the realm of sexual dysfunction. Yeah. Okay. So I think the big areas are pain, especially. Um, so vaginovulvar pain, uh, or what has been previously described as vulvodynia, vaginismus, um, vestibulodynia. Vaginovulvar pain is just a more kind of umbrella term for those things. Uh, and they can be caused by uh, a, a lot of different things. They can be caused by the pelvic floor muscles being too tight. So a hypertonicity of those muscles that uh, make penetration painful or impossible. It could be a lubrication problem that can be related to hormones or circulation, like a, like a vasculature problem. Um, which, uh, if it's like a hormone related problem, especially for genitourinary syndrome of menopause, which is common in almost all, uh, women over the age of 50, it can be easily treated with something like vaginal estrogen. Um, and there's lubricants also that are really great options. And then I think that, uh, there are definitely common issues with female sexual desire, especially in the age that we live in with so many people taking antidepressants that can affect uh, libido and um, arousal and things like that. Uh, and I think one of the other things that is really important to talk about is uh, urinary incontinence after women give birth. That's something that can happen um, 
and isn't really discussed in a lot of detail before women decide to get pregnant. But there are surgeries that I'm sure uh, Dr. Karen Eilber told you all about in that episode Mm -hmm. where you can treat things like that. But something that I'm really excited about uh, is the research that we're doing together in the realm of vibrators and where- Yeah. And where vibrators can possibly serve as a treatment modality and really help out all of these conditions that I've kind of mentioned those, those last three. Yeah. Um, let's go, really in, let's go into that. I'm, uh, I'm excited Absolutely. to hear more. So vibrators have always been seen as just an accessory, not a treatment plan, right? Like <laughs> just like an accessory, like, Oh, especially for uh misogynistic men who's like, you don't need that. You have me. I'm like, Oh, Oh, go away. <laughs> it's actually really funny because uh, in, there's, there's some evidence that really uh, points that vibrators may have been kind of first applied to the pelvis. So as a background to this, uh, there is a long history of pelvic massage uh, treating female-related diseases. And so there's a lot of theories that in the early 1900s during the Industrial Revolution, when vibrators were showing up all over the place in yeah. medical offices to treat digestion, to, te- to treat muscle aches and uh, women's like needlecraft magazine and home improvement magazines that doctors would actually like kind of augment pelvic massage with this uh, treatment modality. It's still definitely something that's heavily debated, but it's, it's just, it definitely uh, was, I think, more sexualized when they were seen in pornographic films called stag films in the 1920s. And so after that, it kind of became the symbol of sexual deviancy and taboo and not something that was considered in the norm. And so right now uh, we've pushed the first kind of study that we did was we went and looked at all of the existing literature uh, that anyone has done on studying vibrators and the pelvic floor and really like pelvic medicine in general. That's kind of the, the area that we're focusing in. And we kind of found that there were three main domains that the few existing studies out there uh, kind of fit into. And the biggest ones were sexual dysfunction. So using a vibrator um, with a specific treatment plan was shown to definitely improve sexual dysfunction. Um, The second big one is pelvic floor dysfunction and stress urinary incontinence, especially uh, with, um, there was one paper that also had uh, mixed urinary incontinence, but urinary incontinence, basically telling women that they should use a vibrator after childbirth or like as a, kind of preventative measure and just as like a um, kind of physical therapy, therapy modality, physical therapists often provide prescribe different kinds of vibrators for uh, people as well. And so the other one, the last one um, that there isn't as much data to support yet, but I'm very optimistic about is what we were discussing before vaginal vulvar pain. And there's some evidence that maybe the vibration and the temporary desensitization can kind of have a a pain reducing effect for some people and also positive associations due to sexual response might kind Mm -hmm. of like ease that pain. Mm -hmm. So that needs to be explored more. There's a lot of, there's a lot of areas to go with this, but uh, there's a really interesting vibrator called the lioness that you might've seen on Mm -hmm. social media. um, And it has sensors on it. And so I am really trying to figure out a way to get a study started where we can kind of get these vibrators to people who might have pelvic floor dysfunction and urinary incontinence, or potentially to people who have vaginal vulvar pain, maybe the tight lipped podcast community and conduct research and kind of use, have those users use the lioness as a biofeedback device where they can look at their pelvic floor contractions and biofeedback has been proven to be a effective treatment in urinary incontinence. So there's definitely a lot of exciting stuff in this area. Wow. So it's a vibrator and it has an app and it sends data to the app. 
Yes. What uh, kind it's of a data does it send? It sends data about pelvic floor pressure. So your contractions are like visualized basically in this graph. Uh, and when they become very rhythmic and kind of this predictable pattern is you can tell kind of when you've had an orgasm. Yeah. Uh, and so it records it and then you can upload the session into like remotely through Bluetooth onto your phone. And in theory, we can use these sessions to kind of track people's uh, orgasms. And so Lioness has already had some really interesting, uh, if you haven't had them on your podcast, they are so interesting to talk to. They've had some really interesting observations about users in just their kind of community, uh, like messaging system, reporting things like orgasm changes before a concussion and after a concussion or before drinking alcohol and after drinking alcohol and all these different areas that haven't been explored really in that way. And this is clitoral orgasm. So this, yeah. So this vibrator basically looks like a, do I have the one here? Let me see. Pause. (laughs) Yes. I have one in my house, I believe. Uh, It looks like a rabbit vibrator and is a little bit um, smaller and it has this portion that branches out that is the clitoral vibrator portion. So this kind of, I guess I don't probe is such a medical word, but that's kind of the word that's coming to my mind, uh, does not vibrate, I believe. And just this part vibrates. Okay. And then this part has the sensors on the side that can measure pelvic floor contraction, as well as a heat sensor right there, which is okay. super interesting. We love wow, smart okay. sex tech. <laughs> so you do uh, insert that part into the vagina and then use the vibrating part on the clit and then to see, uh, and then when you come, it when you contract, it sends all the data to the phone. Correct. Wow, yes. that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm very uh, excited. It's going to be really difficult to get a study approved. Because the data collection with the app is really atypical. A lot of studies that you need to get institutional review board approval for uh, aren't like this. Also, just studying vibrators in general can be really difficult, mm-hmm. especially on real human subjects. So it might take a couple of years, but I'm very optimistic about where we can go with this. Well, it would be an amazing study. So keep pushing. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. So, okay. Tell us more. You, you were saying uh, v- a vibrator is really much more than just a pleasure accessory. Absolutely. And I think that they really get this bad rap, uh, especially among people with, who don't have a vagina for being uh, a competition or uh, something that represents failure for that partner. When in reality, it can really serve as an augmentation and a helper and make that partner feel really powerful. And yeah. like they're really able to give their partner pleasure, which is the objective of sex and what any kind of giving well, uh, intended partner should. should Exactly. It's, it's the ego, right? (laughs) It's the ego. It's a myth of the ego. I should be enough when it's like, this is, you know, two people or more uh, activity. And if you care about your partner, uh, you would just want them to do whatever it takes for them to feel the pleasure that will always also include, not always, but you know, when it includes you, it includes you. Uh, I think, I think that to think and to almost like shame your girlfriend or your uh, partner with a vagina, like why are you using your vibrator again? Or even saying things like that. I feel like it's so despicable. A lot of women already have a hard time, like having toys because they think it's they're, they're inadequate of some sort. Uh, so to like verbally shame uh, women that like just enjoy toys, I think is very despicable. I completely agree. I think that toys are our friends and that 
the most successful partners of any uh, gender or sexual orientation are the ones who have toys on their side. Yes. Who wouldn't want, why wouldn't you use a tool? We use tools in literally every other aspect of our life to make our lives easier. We use tools in the kitchen. We use tools in the kitchen constantly. You're not flipping pancakes with your hand. (laughs) Like, like we, we evolve as technology evolves to make our lives easier. So why would we just be like, you know, um, I'd actually prefer to do it the hard way because I just like a challenge and it's like, (laughs) No one has the time or energy for that. We don't have the patience. <laughs> Let's just like use what's available. And I think there's also this big myth that vibrators desensitize the clitoris and that you won't be able to have an orgasm without a vibrator. And like to some, to some extent that there is truth to that, but it needs to be, it's not just black and white. It's very nuanced. And the truth is that your brain is what is really what's being trained. It's it's really not the, the clitoris that's being trained. You can very easily stop using a vibrator and use your hand. It might take a little bit longer because you've now trained your brain to access that neural pathway and have, I'd like to think of it um, visually as like a marble rolling through sand. And so yeah. if you roll that marble through sand over and over again, every time you have an orgasm, that sand is just going to kind of go deeper and it'll become the pathway that is preferred and that you would like to go to more easily. So it does take a little bit of work, but it's definitely not impossible to carve those new pathways from new sensations and new areas of your body. For example, people who might've lost sensation to their genitals, they need to really touch those ears and those toes maybe a little bit or their back to to feel or nipples to feel the same way yeah. that you did before. And it totally can be done. Yeah. So what what would you say? Like, I know it's, it's such a big debate between, you know, like I can totally use my vibrator every single day, like, you know, a couple, even like a couple times a day, every single day for the rest of my life. But then the inability to feel pleasure without it then becomes another thing that could be burdensome for some people. Mm-hmm. So like, is there a thing about moderation? I think that instead of moderation, I think what I prefer to say is variability or okay. like diversity. Like use diversity in your sensations. So for example, um, things that don't vibrate that also feel incredible for a lot of people. So you've got things like, um, the, Oh, my C or the, um, filare by Laura DiCarlo that are these like kind of balls that roll underneath something that kind of simulate oral sex and like a tongue circling. That's like Mm -hmm. a very different sensation that a vibrator and that can be something to experiment with. The water slide by lovability is something that's really great for people who uh, are burnt out from using a vibrator. Also people with maybe some sort of like physical uh, handy capabilities that aren't able to use their hands. It's a great way to like still be able to experience pleasure with if you have the ability to use your foot or have an aid, turn the bathtub on. It's like a water diverter that basically carries like a stream of water to your groin. Um, and then other things that I think are really interesting. I know, um, Tenga, their Iroha line makes these little like sensory, I don't know how to describe them, but they're a sensory little thing that can go in between your fingers that kind of has the consistency of like a firm jelly and it has a lubricant on it. And just using that to like play with sensation and not use something that like use, use lube with Uh hands or try different things before saying like, I don't think that there's any other way. And if there is no other way, that's also not a problem. Mm-hmm. You don't really need to, if, if you, the way that you have an orgasm is with a vibrator and there is no other way that can get you there, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. And it's so great that we live in an age 
where we have so many options. I know. And and you can play around with sensation and never get bored because people are constantly making new models. I know. That's it's so cool. I feel like very grateful that I I live in this time and age. Yes, exactly. And we can buy them online and they're not they're not censored through the mail. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. Okay, so now that we're on the topic of vibrator, uh talk a little bit about that like it used to treat female hysteria thing. So there's like a lot of debate about this subject. There is this book that came out uh buzz? by what was that? Is it Buzz? No, no. That's interesting though. This is uh Technology of Orgasm by Rachel Maines. Okay. Um and it really had this pretty fleshed out theory that like doctors used vibrators to bring women to orgasm called a hysterical paroxysm and kind of what I was talking about earlier with um, this long history of pelvic massage. So I think that there's definitely some like truth and possibility to this. I think that there is enough evidence to say that like pelvic massage throughout different cultures all over the world was used in various degrees to treat women's diseases. And a lot of women's diseases were chalked up to be hysteria, which was this catch-all diagnosis for a woman experiencing anything because <laughs> women's bodies weren't studied. <laughs> so she's a witch. Was, she's a witch. It was, it was, she like now things that are, were probably like cancer or heart attack or like lung disease or, um, strokes were just kind of at various points in history, chalked up to people like that's a woman's disease. She is disease of the women. Um, and in various different historical documents, there is pretty substantial evidence to cite that that uh, pelvic massage was used for a lot of different things. And so I don't think it's that unreasonable that a doctor who already had a vi- like it during the 1904 around time, maybe sometime in the early 1900s, who might have had a vibrator for constipation and muscle fatigue <laughs> and had already been doing pelvic massages with his hand for a long time might have grabbed that vibrator and just like used it on the pelvis and been like, wow, that worked really well. And then women got the word out and they were like, maybe we should get these in magazines, but I didn't live in this time. And so I'm still kind of trying to do the digging to figure out what the real story was. It's a definitely an attractive story that a lot of people have, have latched onto. And there's certainly been uh, TV and like film adaptations of that story, but there, I mean, there is definitely a very interesting history to the evolution of vibrators. Like there is technology behind uh, there, it wasn't just like we figured out how to make a vibrating machine. And then they were like, let's put this on a pelvis. There was this thing called the pelvic douche in France. That was basically like a fire hose to the groin um, <laughs> <laughs> that people that that was in spas. And I remember reading somewhere that the women would walk out saying they felt like they had just drank a glass of champagne. <laughs> um, so like it's, it was definitely like known by some people, but uh-huh. at various points in society kind of censored out by things. And there've just been all these kind of censoring bodies that, as I'm kind of continuing to talk about, have yeah. continued to be like, and we're not going to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Like Apple lets you on Apple products, you can engrave penis, dick, like all those words. You cannot engrave vagina, pussy, Stop. orgasm. Really? Yeah, no, not but you can, But you can engrave penis, but not yes. vagina. Yes. What yes. the hell? Yes. And there was oh that my episode gosh. of Grey's Anatomy. The Grey's Anatomy episode is the most crazy to me, but they had to make up the word VJJ that didn't like exist prior because the network broadcasting officials at ABC were essentially like, you cannot say vagina on the air and it's too taboo. And this is following an episode in an earlier season where they said penis 17 times. 
Wow. And she's penis on ice the whole episode. What it just is their issue? And I, yeah. I honestly, if anyone hates censorship, is me. I've been censored so many times, just like speaking as a person and talking about sex. Someone with, you know. Uh, credentials to talk about some sexual behaviors and communication behaviors, and if I talk about like, oh, you should talk about sex with your uh, partner, like my videos get banned or you know I get censored all the time, both on Instagram and TikTok, which is so annoying. So tell us more about this censorship of the word vagina or like any other word. Yeah, I. It's basically. Um... Something that I just really wasn't aware of because I think in medicine, we, we use the word vagina. It's definitely used in our medical training, um, in the OB-GYN context, especially. And so doctors might be a little more and like healthcare workers in general might be a little bit more comfortable with the word vagina. But, uh, I found out just kind of by doing this research that, uh, wait, every other aspect of society does not like the word vagina. Um, and it's considered to be pretty much grounds for censorship, like in, in any area of media and print. So some of my, like, I hate to say favorite examples, but the ones <laughs> that I was like the most shocked by are in Mean Girls. Uh, when they used to air Mean Girls on MTV, they would bleep the word vagina and lesbian, but keep slut and whore. So that was weird. It was okay to be a slut and a whore, but not a vagina or a lesbian with a vagina. <laughs> that wasn't allowed. Wow. Um, and then I would love like, to talk to a network executive. Like what, what, what is the thinking? reasoning? Yeah. Delta airlines felt the need to like hire a third party sensor to censor book smart. Uh, the scene about like you, when they talk about a UTI is just totally edited and they also take out the word vagina. And there, I think one of the craziest examples is in politics, like, uh, a U.S. uh, Michigan Democrat house representative, uh, representative Lisa Brown basically was, barred from like speaking on the floor of the house after saying the word vagina in an abortion bill debate, which was crazy. Wow. Um, yeah. Just we're talking <laughs> in a debate about, about abortion and we can't say vagina. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There've been like art exhibits all over the world in Australia and the U S that have been had police show up because they were about the content was about vaginas and they had to cover up things in their windows or there've been advertisers who aren't allowed to advertise on the subway. I know uh, Dr. Jen Gunter had a really hard time getting her book, The Vagina Bible, uh, published with the title that it had and also promoted on social media like Facebook. And I think that just there's one of the biggest like concerns that we saw with this is that there's really no like standardization of what these kind of censoring bodies are doing. They, They don't have across all of these different forums, there isn't like a standard this no. is what is, this is what is unacceptable or what this is, what is acceptable for censorship of the word vagina. And so it's just, it's a little, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. So this is obviously harmful. It's very harmful because patients will not have the tools uh, or the language to be able to tell their providers about gynecological concerns they have. Uh, for example, if someone is like experiencing like horrible pain with sex, or they are just for whatever reason, uh, needing to, they're, they're having vaginal bleeding at at an older age, that that's very concerning. The discomfort that we have as a society with saying the word vagina can interfere with that patient's ability to access good pelvic health care, because 
they don't feel comfortable asking about it and their provider doesn't feel comfortable asking about it. Oh my gosh. Um, vaginal bleeding is kind of a poor example because we're technically taught in medical school to ask about things like that. But I think that, I think especially when it comes to things like abuse um, and mm. sexual discomfort and just sexual dysfunction as a whole, there, there aren't a ton of ways for people to feel comfortable right now asking about those things. And if we, if we give people the right language, I'm really optimistic that they might become more comfortable with trying to talk about it. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. I feel like this, uh, this program uh, through this conversation, the program that you're the, the, the future program about, (laughs) (laughs) about like, you know, proper terms and sexual communication within, uh, the medical community. It's so necessary. And I'm just, I'm excited to see more of your work in the future, because I think this is something that needs to change because doctors are the people we go to, right. When we're, when we're in pain, we're in predicament, when we're, you know, like, like we need doctors and we need them to, I feel like even if, you know, the, the, even if the culture, like the society has not caught up with like saying vagina or saying the right words, but the doctors, if I feel like if they were, or, and other, you know, um, healthcare providers, if they were using the terms, then it, it may make the patients feel more comfortable because, oh, right. hey, my doctor, my my provider is saying these things. So I'm going to mirror and I'm going to say the same words. Uh, I think in the same way, like if I, as a patient, had been asked by a doctor, has sex been a positive experience for you? It would let me know that, oh, sex matters. Sex is something yes. that, I should, that I should be paying attention to. And it's not just something that I should have a glass of wine to make the pain go away or the discomfort I have with my partner. Like I should actually seek out a sex therapist or a sexual medicine specialist to get the right resources to that pelvic floor physical therapist or the sex therapist that I need to get to. Yes. Preach. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To that note, I'd like to circle back uh, to my first question in the introduction of this episode. Can we trust our doctors? I think that there are doctors we can trust and we need more of them. Okay. Uh, is there, is there like a, an indicator of that can help listeners kind of, you know, like we, we go to see a, a doctor or a provider of some sort when we have an issue or maybe it's a maintenance thing. Right. And mm-hmm. we're just kind of, we're limited to have to believe mm-hmm. due to their like credentials and well, you know, they're, they're the doctor. Uh, right. What are some like really good indicators of, you know, um, I, I would say, I, I don't know if this is even the right word, but like responsible mm-hmm. uh, sex positive doctors. I think a good litmus test might be to take some information that this, I know this uh, saying, saying this is like a future doctor. I feel like some people will be cringing, but take something <laughs> from the internet, take something that you found from the internet and show it to your provider and, and kind of see their reaction on it. Like, for example, if, if, this is an example I would say. If if you are someone who thinks that you might have genital urinary syndrome menopause and you are having vaginal dryness and pain with sex and you bring a picture of a tweet from Dr. Rachel Rubin talking about vaginal estrogen and the price on this uh, pharmacy and you ask your doctor, do you know about this or what do you know about this? I think that this might be something uh, 
that applies to me. And I'm really, I'm really curious about this and see how they respond because, uh, some doctors don't know anything about the role of vaginal estrogen, especially in treating recurrent UTIs, um, urinary tract infections. That's definitely something that is kind of on the new. And so, um, I think med Twitter is a really good place because a lot of, uh, studies are cited there. So doctors really want to see the literature and the data and, uh, patients don't quite know where to look for those places because patients aren't necessarily researchers. Um, and so I think that on Twitter, there's a lot of doctors who link studies and like taking those studies to your provider to maybe get the wheels turning and see if they might be interested in doing some more reading themselves. It's unfortunate that in that situation, the patient is becoming the educator for the provider, right. which should not be the goal. The goal should be for the provider to have already learned these things in medical school, but we're clearly having a separate problem. Right. So if you don't want to switch your doctor and you enjoy your doctor for other reasons, um, and you want to kind of see if, if they might be the person that can help you out with this kind of thing, you have to advocate for yourself. Yes. And I think that those, those, those tweets and um, just kind of finding well-sourced material from the internet can be mm-hmm. useful. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for such like a, like a, a great tip, really something that you can do. Like literally fi- go on, uh, what was it? Med Twitter. And then yeah, yeah. find something on it, you know, print it out, like screenshot it on your phone and just ask your doctor, see what's up. Yeah. The journal of sexual medicine is always hosting a lot of really interesting, relevant studies. Um, I want to, who else do I want to promote? Ashley Winter gives incredible tutorials about uh, a lot of like uh, male sexual dysfunction things, but also female topics as well. And Rachel Rubin always has amazing content, uh, especially about female sexual health. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all of these things like with us. I feel like I've learned a lot in this episode, like a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> so before you that. go, uh, we have to play this game called 10 Quickies with Dr. Tara. And oh, I, yay, play I, with, <laughs> I play it with every guest, 10 quickies with Dr. Tara. So I'd give you a word and you just give me a quick response back and it can be anything at all. Okay. I love this. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's go. Number one, clitoris. Hidden. Number two, educational porn. Amazing. Number three, oral sex. Uh, not always the favorite. Number four, squirting. Talent. Number five, vaginal pain. Problem. Number six, pegging adventurous number seven sex drive changes number eight monogamy optional number nine tantric sex Ooh, fascinating and last but not least number 10 sexual health education essential Woo! <laughs> that was awesome thank you so much for your time future <laughs> dr you. rainy and i'm so excited you're moving to los angeles for a little bit so we can hang out Yes, yes, we're absolutely <laughs> hanging out. This has been such a pleasure, Dr. Tara. Thank you so much for having me on. And I will have uh, all the links to Rainy and all of her work in today's show notes. And my Love Bites fam, thank you so, so much for listening and for hanging out. Uh, let me know what you think about the episode. DM me. I would love to hear from you. And per usual, have an orgasmic day. Massages can be sexually arousing. Upgrade your foreplay with an amazing massage candle by Maud. It's body safe and skin softening. Once melted and extinguished, it can be poured on the skin. And let the fun begin. Check out the link in this episode's description and have an orgasmic time. Thanks for listening. This was was Love Bites. Love Bites. 
by Dr. Tara. Follow Dr. Tara on social media at lovebites.co. Have an orgasmic day.